Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Maura Dunst of the University of Hull looks at the forgotten Queen of Bath, Madame Sarah Grand. Thank you very much uh, for that lovely introduction. So, on the 10th of June, 1854, Frances Elizabeth Bellenden Clark was born at Rosebank House in County Down. Though born in Ireland, Frances's parents were English. Her father was a Royal Navy lieutenant assigned to Coast Guard duties in the area, and her mother was a Yorkshire woman of genteel stock. Frances was born into a world of shabby gentility, however, under the care of a mother who was accustomed to a life her husband's means would not allow, who was unhappy with her circumstances, her husband, and the daily demands of her children, and whose circumstances further deteriorated upon the death of her husband in 1861. Frances's time spent in Ireland was generally unhappy and introduced her to the life of an outsider, a position in which she frequently found herself throughout her life. A Protestant family in a Catholic area, the Clarks were met with, met with hostility, which made a significant imprint upon the mind of the young Frances. Further unhappiness ensued because of and following the death of her father, her mother, with few options. Let's remember that it was 1861, a time when women were not allowed financial autonomy, moved the family, by then made up of five children, three girls and two boys, to a place near Scarborough, Yorkshire, in, ho in hopes that her nearby brother would subsidize his impoverished sister and her children. Though he must have done so, as the family did not starve, they were very poor, and Frances's mother routed all available resources to her son's education and enjoyment. Frances, uneducated and forced to wear her brother's hand-me-down jackets and shabby frocks, found herself again an outsider, jeered at by locals. Frances later described herself as a sensitive, high-strung, nervous child whose abilities were not just under undeveloped, but, far more offensively, purposefully stunted by her mother. She watched her brothers undertake expensive formal education while she and her sisters had their intellectual development checked again and again. Luckily for Frances, her great-aunt, Sarah Bell, left in her will a small annuity for her education. Though her mother was reluctant to use this money for its intended purpose, she eventually agreed, though not gracefully, making it clear that her education deprived her brothers of much-needed resources. Nevertheless, Frances entered the Royal Navy School at Twickenham in 1868 at age 14, her first experience with formal education. Being entirely unused to such an environment, the precocious Frances struggled with her newfound constraint and physical confinement that came with formal education. Physical exercise was limited, an issue for the previously somewhat feral child, and her lessons were disappointing. Nothing was taught thoroughly, no intellectual discourse was allowed. It is probably safe to assume that she struggled socially. In what must have been a crushing disappointment for the young girl, she again found herself unhappy and understimulated. During this time, however, she found a topic which engaged her intellect, Josephine Butler and her campaign to repeal the Contagious Disease Acts, which were designed to limit the spread of syphilis in the armed forces, an issue which had reached nearly epidemic proportions. The acts, follow, or rather, the acts allowed for forcible surgical examination of suspected prostitutes in areas near military bases. All it took was suspicion, which is ambiguously defined, giving officials a wide swath of behaviors which could be deemed suspicious, and, should the woman prove to be infected, 
She could be detained in a lock hospital where she would undergo treatments which, given the limited Victorian medical understanding of venereal disease, sound a bit more like medieval torture than medical treatment. No mention of diagnosis, treatment, or quarantine of infected men was made. This affected Frances greatly and became a recurring theme throughout her life's work. In the Beth book, the long-suffering main character asks her profligate doctor husband, what do you do to the men who spread it? What becomes of diseased men? To which her husband replies, oh, they marry, I suppose. Anyhow, that is not my business. Grant formed a club whose principal purpose was to support Butler's social reforms. At the conservative Royal Navy Academy, this activity was no doubt met with consternation. It is not surprising, then, that Sarah's tenure at the Academy only lasted a year, and she left rather abruptly for a finishing school in Kensington. Here, her disillusionment with women's education was solidified. The Academy's somewhat nebulous policy of steering women towards their ultimate and sole aim, marriage, became a fully materialized educational objective at the finishing school. The girls were taught a variety of accomplishments, languages, music, drawing, dancing. Surely, this seemed like child's play to the precocious Frances and was likely insulting to her developing and clearly already capable intellect. Though she maintained she was never expelled from either school, she again left abruptly, lasting only a few months, and was brought back to Yorkshire, her unhappy and unwelcoming home, at age 16, having embarked on a spectacularly disappointing foray into formal education. Despite her childhood, which she, des- which she described as debilitating, by the time she returned home, she was convinced of her own misunderstood genius and determined to find it a suitable outlet. In August 1870, at age 16, not long after she returned home, Frances engaged in a whirlwind courtship and subsequent marriage with David Chambers McFall, a 39-year-old decorated army surgeon. McFall, a widower, had two sons from a previous marriage, one 10 and one 8. They needed a mother, McFall needed a wife, and Frances needed an out. A marriage to McFall offered Frances, first and foremost, a departure from her home and independence from her mother, but also... McFall dazzled Francis with stories of his heroism, the excitement and stimulation of battle, the breadth of knowledge he had amassed in his life as a surgeon, how much of the world he had seen. Francis later acknowledged that one of the key attractions to McFall was the unlimited access to books and study that he offered. She wrote of her decision to marry him, the great inducement being that I should be able to study thoroughly any subject I liked, learn languages so that I could speak them, and music so that I could play it, have command of good books, and escape from routine. Gillian Kersley, Francis's biographer, writes that while she found it difficult to recall him with kindness and her descriptions of him in her novels are barbed and bitter, at the time, McFall must have appeared splendid to the inexperienced Francis. She never mentions love, but seemingly the educational possibilities were enough. And indeed, her educational aims were realized. She saw the world through traveling and living in the Far East from 1873 to 1878. She dabbled in literary composition and wrote her first novel, Two Dear Little Feet, in 1873. It was not a success. She read her husband's medical texts and any other books she could get her hands on. Like the heroines of her later novels, Frances threw her energies into educating herself and discovering with delight how easy it was for a girl to comprehend masculine subjects and determined to share this discovery with other women. 
Her learning was vast and stimulating, her brain engaged, her intellect finally challenged. Frances certainly got an education through her marriage to McFall, but it was a bit more than she bargained for. Though she read widely and studied to her heart's content, she also became learned in the discipline of the unhappy, ill-treated wife. McFall's immoral behavior horrified the uptight Francis. He drank, he smoked, he fraternized with lewd women, he told vulgar stories. Later, he worked in a lock hospital, the very institution Francis had fought so passionately against. It is her, if, rather, if her portrayal of Dan McClure in her autobiographical novel, The Beth Book, is accurate, he was also an adulterer, a cruel vivisectionist, and a tyrannical husband who, among other controlling activities, opened his wife's letters. She had only one child, a son, David Archibald, Archibald Edward McFall, called Archie, the year after she married. Her depri deprivation of love, concern, and knowledge that she suffered through her childhood had, to her dismay, continued into her marriage and adulthood. Her dissatisfaction with her marriage and her feelings of repugnance for her husband are reflected in her literature. Whatever passion she may have felt for him, at first, quickly died and was never recovered. Gillian Kersley writes, her chosen themes, purity for men and some kind of autonomy for women, are ideals pursued with more enthusiasm and, and verve in her novels than any sexual relationship, in however spiritual a light such a relationship is portrayed. Her heroines always suffer miserably from want of privacy or consideration or from boredom. Her heroes are syphilitic, beat their wives, open their letters, steal their savings, flirt with barmaids and nursemaids, bring their mistresses home, or leave them to die in DOS houses, drink, run lock hospitals, practice vivisection, force unwanted attentions. Furthermore, if these attributes do not reduce their wives to dementia or death, these heroes extract promises from their women that they will not take part in feminist activities. There is not a husband in Sarah Grant's fiction who cares for his wife intell wife's intellect or mental welfare. Excuse me. In 1879, the McFalls moved to Norwich, uh, which became the basis for Morning Quest, the setting of one of her later novels, The Heavenly Twins. And in 1881, they relocated to Warrington, Lancashire, where Francis's husband relaxed into semi-retirement. These years were miserable for Francis. Her husband's behavior deteriorated, her first attempt at authorship had failed, and she, found, and she could not find a publisher for her second novel called Ideala, A Study from Life. She eventually had it published out of pocket in 1888, and it met a measure of success. Francis, now, for perhaps the first time in her 34 years, had money of her own. In 1890, her son, now 19, her finances stable, Frances finally reacted to her husband's behavior. She left him. This, as Kersley put it, proved she was a monster. Imagine the kind of oppressive unhappiness that she would have been suffering in order to take such a radical step, especially for a woman who was so concerned with propriety as Frances was. She had been married for 20 years, almost all of which had been deeply unhappy. Now, taking matters into her own hands, Frances left her husband. They never divorced, and she wore her wedding ring for the rest of her life, but they never reunited either, and when her husband died in 1898, she did not attend his funeral. In 1891, Frances moved to Kensington. There, she met recognition as an intellectual, spending time with like-minded women, existing in what she called a new world. She wrote articles, gave lectures, set to work on writing, and then finding a suitable publisher for a novel called The Heavenly Twins, which encompassed what became her main themes, 
critique of the oppression of women in marriage, sexual purity for both sexes, raising awareness about venereal disease and its prevention, women's education, and eugenics. Francis wanted to, de- to de- sorry, Francis was determined to educate women about the darker side of sex and marriage so that no more would become unwitting victims. It is at this time that she changed her name to Sarah Grand, as her husband had by then made it clear that he did not wish to be associated with her views. The inspiration for the name is unknown. <clears throat> she at various times said it was suggested by her stepsons, came to her in a dream, was taken from an old woman, or was chosen because it was brief and memorable. Whatever its origins, she, uses the, she used the name to publish the Heavenly Twins and was known <clears throat> excuse me, exclusively by this mon- moniker afterwards. The novel, published as a triple-decker in 1893, became an immediate sensation and, as Kersley writes, the woman of genius was beginning to be noticed and nothing should stand in her way. The Heavenly Twins was reprinted six times in its first year and solidified both Frances's fortune and her fame. The Heavenly Twins shocked its readership. Its, for the time, blatant discussion of syphilis was particularly stunning. The lovely and innocent Edith Beale marries a military man whose debauched life is unknown to her prior to the marriage. He gives her syphilis, which she passes to their child. She descends into madness and dies. Also, though, Angelica, the female half of the twins for whom the novel is is named, is heartbreakingly limited while her less capable brother is encouraged. And the third heroine, Evadne, marries a military man whose immoral behavior was kept from her. Noticing a theme here, I hope. And who makes her promise to not engage in any political activity during his life, a promise which cripples her mentally. Two of the three women are chased within marriage. The third, Edith, is the unwitting, unwitting victim of her husband's disease. Grand's opinions on sexual relationships were thus made clear. Indeed, despite being lambasted in the press as immoral, Grand was at the head of the so-called social purity campaign and was in reality a rather conservative character. Still, in the press, she was deemed unwomanly and socially disruptive, a wicked influence on Victorian women. Not everyone felt this way, though, and she became a major player on the cultural and socio-political scene during the fin de siècle. George Bernard Shaw listed her with Ibsen, Whistler, and Wagner as someone who has a touch of genius. She proved to be on the crest of the new woman wave, a term which she coined herself in 1894. Ibsen's A Doll's House was first performed in 1889. The Heavenly Twins made its appearance in 1893, and a few months later, George Edgerton's Keynotes was published, an equally shocking new woman sensation. Grand, in many ways, defined the new woman, a bicycle-riding, book-reading, educated, financially independent form of feminist femininity which took Britain by storm in the 1890s. In 1894, riding on the wave of her newfound fame, Grand moved to a larger flat in Kensington. She gave a constant stream of interviews and speeches, publishing short stories and articles. The strain of public censure take, took its toll, however, and she took long convalesces away from London to treat what was termed nervous exhaustion. This happened again in 1895 and in 1903, and perhaps even more frequently. Despite her successes, her new life had brought her a new level of vitriolic criticism, and regardless of not wavering from her stance, she struggled under its weight. But there were upsides, too. She was, by her standards, rich, She lived a comfortable life in Kensington and could afford larger and larger hats. 
She traveled to America in 1901 on a lecture tour of four months' duration, the first of many such American tours. She hobnobbed with the likes of Mark Twain, George Bernard Shaw, and Thomas Hardy. Her husband was by now dead, and she had since moved to Tunbridge Wells to live with her stepson, Haldane. She spent 1903 to 1912 lecturing and attending to the various duties attached to her membership in the Women Writers' Suffrage League, the Women's Citizens' Association, the Women's Suffrage Society, of which she was vice president, and I won't bore you with the remaining list, just trust that it's extensive. She moved to Paris and back, bringing her new love of cycling with her, which caused her, which rather, which led to her participation in the rational dress movement, Though she refused to wear bloomers, as she had in Paris, she took to wearing discreetly divided skirts after a particularly embarrassing incident involving a cycling skirt getting caught in the spokes of her wheel and torn asunder. Grand lived in Tunbridge Wells for the next 20 years, writing, lecturing, and participating in the political and intellectual atmosphere of the early 20th century. By 1920, however, Grand's once bright celebrity had waned, and she was largely forgotten. She needed a new place to live, and when the opportunity to move to Bath arose, she accepted. Oops, sorry. Grant had met the brother-sister duo Rachel and William Tyndall through their shared enthusiasm for her lectures. They were looking to relocate at the same time as Grant was looking for new accommodation. William bought Crow Hall on Whitcomb Hill and invited Grant to join them there, and thus began Grant's time in Bath. In 1922, at age 68, two years after her arrival, it was announced that Madame Sarah Grant had been offered and accepted the position of mayoress alongside widower Mayor Cedric Shivers. Suddenly, Grant's name was revived. In the press, she was referred to as Bath's celebrity author slash mayoress, despite a now limited popular knowledge of her novels. A newspaper article from this time informed readers that few admirers of Madame Grant, Sarah Grant's books now know that she is mayoress of that delightful city, Bath. The mayor is Alderman Shivers, a widower, and when he, he was sorry, and when he was created the city's chief dignitary, he availed himself in his most gallant fashion of one of his privileges and invited Madame Sarah Grant to dispense the hospitalities and become mayoress. It is not surprising to learn that Bath has dubbed this popular pair the Heavenly Twins. Shivers and Grand served in office six times between 1922 until his death in 1929, the only break being from 1923 to 1924. Oh, sorry. At the start of their mayoralty, Shivers presented the city of Bath with a new chain of office for the mayoress to wear which she's wearing in this picture, comprised of an 18th century German belt of silver gilt links from which hangs the mayoress's gold badge of office. This chain is still kept in the mayor's parlor, which I know because I saw it there, but its history begins with Sarah Grand. Grand was a popular mayoress, perhaps the only time in her life she could, she could be considered popular. She was well-known and well-liked throughout Bath and a society staple. Upon their return to office in 1924, a Bath newspaper article said, of Madame Sarah Grand, at the mention of whose name there was loud applause, the officiator said all were delighted that she had consented again to assume the role of mayoress, a role which she discharged with such distinction a year ago. Grand's duties ranged from dinner attendance to meeting visiting dignitaries, attending a constant stream of concerts, plays, speeches, meetings, and various other events. 
hopping between the guild hall, the pump room, the assembly rooms, and other bath civic staples. She unveiled the Francis Burney plaque on, on the South Parade and entertained a group of sanitary engineers from 17 countries at the Roman baths. Do I have a picture of that? No, I don't. It's a, I, I wish I had put it in. It's a hilarious picture of this group of, um, you know, something like 20 men at the baths, and then there's Sarah Grand in her finery with her uh, mayoress's chain. It's a fantastic picture. Uh, sometimes her duties bordered on the bazaar, as when an ad from a Queensland farmer, quote, with an honest face and 2,400 acres, looking for a wife, caused a response of upwards of 300 letters from eligible women expressing their utmost suitability for the farmer. Chivers and Grand set themselves the task of finding this lonely farmer a suitable wife amongst the hundreds of applicants. With Grand's life experience, Chivers could not have picked himself a more savvy matchmaker. In 1926, a fire broke out at Crow Hall, killing the cook and ousting the residents. Grand had perhaps overstayed her welcome at the Tyndall's house, much of Bath believed Crow Hall to be owned by Grand, a myth, a myth which she did little to dispel. Grand then moved with her sister Nellie to Seven Zion Hill Place, where she remained until 1942. During the last two years of their six-year mayoralty, Shivers was often ill, and Sarah's duties extended to performing most of his civic duties as well. Upon Shivers' death in 1929, she was asked informally if she would be mayor herself, but she refused. With her novels by now out of print and her civic functions finished, she began again to fade into obscurity. Though Grand's fame quickly waned, for one Bath resident, it remained as potent as ever. Gladys Singer's Bigger, a spinster in her 30s living with her domineering mother and actress sister, started to play, pay attention to Grand's movements. They first met in 1925, and Gladys began collecting newspaper clippings about Grand as early as 1926. After two years of carefully designed accidental meetings, Grand, invited, Grand finally invited Gladys to tea in 1927. Starting then, Gladys recorded all of their interactions until 1944 in a series of journals she later called Ideala, A Record of a Dear Friendship. These journals are now housed at Bath Central Library and give a fascinating glimpse into both the end of Grand's life and the passionate oddness of Gladys, an eternally unfortunate but well-meaning hero worshipper. What began as starstruck admiration became, due almost exclusively to Gladys's unflagging persistence, an 18-year friendship, which, though eventually valued by both parties, was primarily one-sided. As Kersley put it, Grand, quote, had no real need of Gladys's friendship and never treated her as an equal, yet she never actively discouraged Gladys and would fuel her ardor when it showed signs of flagging. Despite the former, the latter was enough for Gladys to devote herself surprisingly wholeheartedly to Grand, her darling madam, as she called her. Gladys was a perpetual also-ran, living in the shadow of her gorgeous and gifted sister, they grew up in relative wealth, which was lost upon the combination of their father's death and a Wall Street, Wall Street crash. Funds dwindled, but no alteration in lifestyle was made. Sweet, devoted, and dull, with, with dreams of being an author herself, Gladys found an outlet for her romantic energies in her rather dramatic friendship with Grand. Their early meetings were formal, but already from afar, Gladys had fallen under the mayoress's spell in spite of finding her cold, aloof, and certainly not encouraging. 
In addition to the frequent letters, in 1927, Gladys began a series of diaries devoted exclusively to Grand, calling her Darling Madam, Motherkins, Mother of My Spirit, Mother Angel, and so on. She bought two rings, one which she kept and one which she gave to Grand, and insisted that they both wear them. She wore it on her third finger and expressed jealousy over Grand's wedding ring, which she still wore. Gladys occasionally referred to Grand in her diaries as Bride of My Spirit. I did say her devotion was surprisingly wholehearted. As mentioned earlier, following the fire at Crow Hall, Grand had moved to Seven Zion Hill Place. Conveniently for Gladys, this was only a short distance from her home at 12 Marlborough Buildings. So A here is uh, Gladys's house, and the B is um, Grand's. Gladys walked the distance regularly, delivering letters to Grand, or simply wanting to walk the ground where Grand had trod. Gladys began, then spent months working on and typing what she called a Sarah Grand miscellany, a collection of quotations from Grand's works. Her writing expanded from letters and diaries to poems about Grand. For example, Blue Butterflies, written in June of 1927, three months after Grand had first invited Gladys to tea. There were wings in your eyes tonight, little blue wings that fluttered as if your thoughts took flight beyond the words you uttered. There were wings tonight in your eyes, petal sweet wings of azure, as if, the dain- as if like dainty butterflies, they shyly danced a measure. There were wings in my eyes as well, moth-like brown wings that brushed them, as if so fragile were the spell, a deeper glance had crushed them. Yet those wings in our eyes tonight, thought-laden wings unbroken, were strong to bear the words, were strong to bear in words despite the love we left unspoken. The Singer's Bigger family continued their descent into poverty, though barely a mention of this is made in, great, in Gladys's increasingly poetic diaries. While her friendship with Grand, now the focus of her life, her energy, became more intense, with each interaction described in detail in her diaries, which would eventually fill seven volumes in total. It was meant to be, as Gladys put it, a record of days so dear to me, so that in the years to come, I may perhaps be able to live them over through its medium. Here is Gladys's retelling of her first invitation to Grand's for tea in March of 1927. I do not know quite how to record the wonderful blessing that has come to me since last I wrote in this book. It is so dear to me that I do not wish to lose its details, but also it is so sacred that I hesitate to write of it in full. I will give it, therefore, in language which only reverence holds restrained and without, I hope, revealing any confidence she would rather that I left unwritten. I have always, it seemed to me, longed for Madame Grand's friendship, even when, encouraged, discouraged rather, by her apparent aloofness, I have sought to crush the wish for it out of my heart. That it, that it is at last, at long last, mine and mine as surely as her spirit is steadfast, is still something of a miracle to me, but a miracle that is becoming, with our every meeting, more and more natural. This gushing tone continues, if you can believe it, for the next seven volumes. It is a constant, if rather tedious, expression of love from one friend to another. And here's a picture of, um, I believe it's the Dickens, Dickens Annual Fellowship Dinner, is it? Yeah. Gladys is um, this one. Grand is here. And Gladys's sister is uh, the one with her face sort of turned to um, the left, your right, in the back. 
Gladys lingers on the memory of physical contact with Grand. She writes, On the landing, she detained me, pointing out another print, and for a sacred moment or two, her delicate figure was close against mine, and I was conscious again of the fragrant bodily reserve which is hers, and which makes her proximity purifying as a breath of the spirit. Gladys obsessed over every minute trifle, worrying about having laughed too loud, whether a comment on Charlotte Bronte was well-received, wondering why Grant had looked so frequently at her shoes, and so on. A typical recorded exchange is one like this. When driving home together late after an event, they came to park gates, which were shut. Gladys expects to have to go around, but the gatekeeper opened the gates and allowed them to pass. Gladys writes, They are opening them, I said to Grant, rather, they are opening them for you because you are mayoress. You are queen of Bath, I told her. Madam did not reply. Gladys literally sits at Grand's feet when given the opportunity and kisses her hand. She muses on how she hungers for Grand's presence. Grand remains chilly in, remains chilly in response. In 1928, Gladys writes that, quote, I have told her everything about myself, but she keeps her own counsel and I know little of her actual history. Gladys's feelings are hurt by Grand regularly, once even causing her to write that, quote, when I got in, I threw myself on the floor by her picture and cried and cried. She showered Grand with gifts, an action which was not reciprocated. Grand reprimanded Gladys for her schoolgirliness. Still, despite Grand's reluctance, she did grow fond of Gladys, and her letters show increasing affection on Grand's part, but still a distance. Gladys records, to tea with Darling, she was not well and in a difficult mood. She had not liked the paper I had written for the poetry circle and Lord Houghton, and she did not care for the color of my new dress. Gladys's family continued to struggle and eventually moved to 12 St. James's Square, even closer to Grand's, uh, Grand's house, as Gladys excitingly noted. And St. James Square is that sort of box just above, uh, is that Julian Road? Yeah. yeah. Their friendship continued into the mid-1930s, when a misunderstanding called a rift, caused a rift, which, to Gladys's dismay, was never entirely repaired. In 1935, Gladys believed herself to be in love with grandson Archie, and furthermore, believed that he would marry her, and even furthermore, believed that this was Grand's idea. She could not have been more wrong. Archie was not on board, and Grand was horrified, separating herself from Gladys for quite some time. Gladys remained persistent, but Grand had again retreated into the slightly cold politeness with which she enveloped herself at the start of their friendship. In 1942, Grand's house was damaged by a bomb. Ailing, she moved to Wiltshire. Despite her, her desperate financial situation, Gladys took up lodging at a local hotel to be near her. Gladys's account of Grand's last year of life described Grand as not well and largely immobile, sometimes confused. Gladys still referred to her as my darling. Then, on the 13th of May, 1943, Sarah Grand, the now forgotten authoress and queen of Bath, took her final breath. Gladys's diary for the day read simply, she went from me. The year following Grand's death, her son Archie died in a London air raid. Gladys moved to Devon with her sister and their friend and tried to arrange for a white rose tree to be planted on Sarah's grave. If this tree was ever planted, it has since been removed. 
Gladys tried once more to drum up interest in the Sarah Grand Miscellany, but with Grand's name forgotten and the frenzied political climate of the Fantasiac now long finished, she met with little success. Gladys's sister died in 1960, at which point she, tired of being treated like a servant by her sister's friend with whom she lived, returned to Bath, alone and destitute. She lived in one room at 2 Darlington Street, near Sydney Gardens. Increasingly crippled by arthritis, Gladys relied on her landlady for meals and shopping. Her few remaining friends were very concerned about what little heat and food she had and arranged for her to move to a Royal United Kingdom Benevolent Association home. As Kersley tells it, at Christmas 1969, a friend found her alone in the empty house with nothing but some Christmas cake. On the 5th of January, the same friend helped her to pack to leave Bath for the RUKBA home at Camberley. That night, the coldest of the year, the landlady turned off the gas at 8 o'clock. The inquest, held on the 13th of January, made headlines in the local papers. The headline read, Woman, 81, dies from cold. I'm shocked, says Bath's coroner. The article reads, An 81-year-old woman living within a half mile of the center of Bath died from cold, a Bath inquest was told last night. Kersley writes, her death was recorded as from bronchopneumonia after suffering from hypothermia. She had been discovered in the morning, lying on her bed, partially dressed and completely uncovered. And so Gladys died alone, with 1,300 pounds, which she left to a godson in Canada. Amongst her papers was found a letter dated a couple of months earlier, referring to a gardener who required 25 shillings per year for the next 10 years to maintain the grave of Madame Sarah Grant. Gladys's end fit her life, solitary and unfortunate. I can't help but feel very sorry for Gladys and her strange, passionate, and sad life. Without Gladys, however, our knowledge of Grand would be significantly less. It is Gladys's meticulous journal journaling and thorough, thorough letter-saving that has allowed for a greater understanding of the somewhat mysterious Sarah Grand than would otherwise be given. Grant herself was interested in keeping certain elements of her life a secret, despite divulging much in her novels. When, in 1928, Gladys suggested Grant write her memoirs, Grant responded that she wouldn't because, quote, she could not tell the truth. What this truth would be is tantalizing and unreachable. Still, thanks to Gladys's tireless efforts, a portrait of Grant can be partially formed. Grant's impact on the political and literary scene in the late 19th century was immense. Her social legacy for women, significant, and her bravery in daring to say what no one else would, for instance, in the case of the spread of venereal disease, unmatched in her time. Grant also made a significant stamp on Bath. Her footsteps, though now forgotten, are all over this city. Her fingerprints on countless buildings the Guildhall has a, has a stack of giant mayalty scrapbooks containing newspaper clippings from Shivers' time in office. In them, Grand's name and face is everywhere. Grand is buried in Lansdowne Cemetery next to her sister. Though she is included on the list of graves of interest, even with a map, it is hard to find. It is, much like she was in her childhood, neglected and overlooked. But rather than wallowing in her obscurity, I would rather celebrate her achievements, of which there are many. Interest in Grand and her fellow New Woman writers is increasing, 
And it is my sincerest hope that Grand's name be known once again, and that she be, she be recognized in death for what she was in life, a pioneer in the fight for equality, an accomplished writer, a tireless worker for the betterment of her community, and, despite, or perhaps because of, her flaws, a fascinating and complex figure. I like to think that Grand, a skilled lecturer, would have appreciated this lecture herself, though she would have no doubt executed it with greater grace and energy than I have managed here. Nevertheless, I thank you sincerely for listening and suggest you read one of Grand's novels immediately. And here's sort of her three most, they, they, generally the literary community refers to them as her feminist trilogy, um, Ideala, The Heavenly Twins, and, and The Bath Book, although she wrote um, much more widely than this, but these are perhaps the three that you could actually get your hands on should you, should you like to. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs>